0: This is the love that makes me strong This is the love that makes me strong Yeah this is the love This is the love This is the love This is the love that makes me strong This is the love that makes me strong Yeah this is the love This is the love This is the love Hello, and welcome to Dad-Daughter Dialogues, an opportunity to lift up me and my dad's relationship through discussion about politics, current events, and whatever else we can think of. We hope that it'll inspire you to share and chat more with your dad, be it your biological father, grandfather, stepfather, like a father, or any other variation. I am your co-host, Aisha DeBerry, and I'm here with my soon-to-be birthday guy, dad,
1: Roy Deberry. Here, here. You're right. <laughs> Only a few weeks ago. Way looking for that nice gift too. Uh, should, <laughs> it's, it's good to, to be back. Uh, it's been a couple of weeks since we've had a chance to dialogue and uh, meet our audience again as we always look forward to that piece. And so I was just telling you earlier before we went on live that it was a beautiful day here. I was sitting down on the deck having a sandwich. It's about 72 degrees. wind is blowing, high pressure. Uh, low humidity, just an ideal day. We don't get many days like this in May. So, yeah, I've taken the opportunity to enjoy. Yesterday was like 60 degrees, which was some kind of high record for May in Mississippi. So, yeah, we're uh, we gonna take those days and sort of enjoy them as, as long as we can. So, yeah, <laughs> it's great to be back uh, and uh, on a Memorial Day weekend.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so I am so glad to be with you again, you know, as always. So we'll go ahead and get started. So before we, you know, get into it, and Dad brought this to my attention before we got um, on here, is The music that you hear, if you're listening to this later, of course, if you're on Facebook Live, you're not hearing it right now, but if you go to Anchor FM or Apple Podcasts or wherever a podcast is broadcasted, you'll hear the music, This Is The Love, right before we go into our um, conversation or you may have just heard it. And that is actually an original piece that was done by Classic Entertainment, which is a husband and wife team, Kwame, Koran, who is actually a distant cousin of ours, Created this originally, and so dad brought it to my attention, which is so true because we talk about this all the time is really to support businesses, um, support entrepreneurs, and in particular, artists, um, especially during this pandemic, they have suffered greatly as well, because a lot of times they're dependent on live entertainment or folks coming in and watching them or listening to them. And that's how they make their living. So they've had to pivot and do things creatively. So of course we want to continue to support Kwame Classic Entertainment, lift them up. So you should follow them on Instagram or Facebook. That's K-L-A-C-C-I-K Entertainment. Again, this is an original piece that they designed
1: for us. Thank you, Aisha. And I and Luan will, will appreciate that. You're right. You're right to lift them up. And you're absolutely right that musicians, particularly artists, not just musicians, but artists in general,
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: you know, suffered a great deal financially during this uh, pandemic. And we are now hopeful that with some lifting of, of, of regulations, uh, they'll be able to get back out there and, and perform for live audiences, which I know they all look forward to.
0: Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. No, thank you for reminding me about that. And and Kwame and Luam, if you are listening, we definitely appreciate all the work that you have helped kick off this uh, podcast that now has been going on for over a year. Wow! Congratulations to us, Dad.
1: Thank you. I had no idea. We had no idea that the pandemic was going to be this long, for one. And number two, when we started this process, we had no idea that it would be a year later. We'd still uh, doing this, and we hope during this past year, you know, we have talked about themes and issues that people have found of some interest and maybe provoked some thoughts that perhaps they would not have otherwise, uh, you know, and in, 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 in endeavor to deal with. So anyway, yeah. it was fun for us, fun for me, and uh, I'm glad we're still doing it.
0: Yeah, me too. I mean, I think, and we'll dive into it a little bit deeper, but when we were talking, you know uh, many of you all who tune in know that first of all dad loves talking about politics even though i get requests from you all saying i want to know more about dad's life it ain't happening y'all because all he gonna do is talk about politics <laughs> <laughs> and current events, so don't look for it. But well, I you know I did want to did want to in particular today talk a little bit more about politics and current events, and in particular Memorial Day. Uh, we are broadcasting right now during Memorial Day weekend. If you happen to listen to this later, and to tell you the truth, I don't really know much about Memorial Day. I actually got a note from a friend and if you're listening garland williams who is um on my facebook he was a friend that i was with in leadership Gwinnett really learned a lot about veterans in the military of course he is a veteran and he left this really uh, wrote this really long note on facebook just saying you know a lot of people have said you know um I salute you and bless you and you know my hat goes off to you and all of those terms that we use when we uh appreciate our veterans but he said quite honestly I am a living person and so this is not the holiday for that the holiday is to reflect on those soldiers who have fallen um be them black brown white um you know, uh, immigrants, et cetera, but he wanted to make sure that we understood that and had, if you will, the right posture for the day. So, but but to be frank, I don't really know much of the history around Memorial Day. So, Memorial day. so this is, you know, my time to kind of talk to you kind of back and forth about your thoughts of it or what you know right, about right. Memorial Day well, and for I, those who are listening. Well, I think well. you're right
1: to put that in a perspective in terms of the dead versus the living. Uh, I don't pretend to be an expert on on the day. Uh, uh, there are obviously many origins with respect to uh, the celebration of Memorial Day. I was just listening to a fellow Russian, who is a uh, has a, a show here on uh, Mississippi Public Broadcasting related to gardening, and of course mm-hmm. they talk like we do. A lot of themes come up, and they and he's an expert, but he's not an expert in this area. But he did say that he had heard that. Uh, that it was normally called in the old days celebration day as opposed to Memorial Day. Mm. And he was of the opinion that it started in, in Columbus, Mississippi. Well, you know, I don't know that to be a fact. That's what he said. There are some people from upstate New York would argue that, that they uh, started there. I think there have been many origins. I mean, if you look at even uh, enslaved people who were right after the Civil War uh, in a place called Charleston, South Carolina, uh, that was way back in 1866 or so. They started uh, recognizing the day as a, as a declaration day because your, your friend is absolutely right. It had to do really with all the enormous loss that occurred after the Civil War, okay? Yeah. so this was a way for the living to honor those who had made the ultimate sacrifice, which meant that they gave their lives. So I think, right, it's a, it's a way to honor those honorable soldiers for all branches of the uh, armed forces who have given their lives in the Civil War and the Mexican War, uh, the wars with the Native Americans, even though that's unfortunate because in that case, we honor both the veterans of the uh, Native people and mm-hmm. the vets of the, those wars. And then of course, the Mexican War and the wars and down in places like Cuba and wherever have you. And then those that went to World War I, like my father's, Father did and died in France and World War II and, and Korea and Vietnam and Iraq and, and on and on and on. So, but yeah. anyways, it's the way for people who are living to honor the ones that have, have uh, given the ultimate sacrifice. You're right, it's not about the living. We have other days to, uh, to recognize and honor the living. This is a day for the dead. And I think people go beyond just the military. I know in my family, uh, people take this opportunity to go and visit uh, the graves of the ancestors, Mm. Uh, mothers and fathers. Now a lot lot of time we do it on Mother's Day and and Father's Day, but I know Mary, my sister always goes to my mother's grave site on Memorial Day and leave a flower. Mm. So it's a way to remember her uh, and the dead. But I think the day itself, the official day, which started in 1971, Mm -hmm. when the feds decided to make a national holiday.
0: It's the honor of the dead. Mm. No, that's good it's, to know. I didn't even know that Aunt Mary did that for yeah. Big Mama, as I we call her as grandchildren. Right. Um, so that's good to know. I mean, that is a very creative way outside of um, the initial intention of Memorial Day is even to begin to, you know, uh, keep people in memory that have passed away, our ancestors and beyond. Um, So I like that in terms of another creative way instead of, you know, just just having our barbecues and celebrating. I'm just saying I'm not calling out the people that's that's having the barbecues.
1: Right. That's (laughs) right. I think it's all right. You know, it's all right to do all those things. But I think you're absolutely right. At least have a little knowledge of why you're doing it and why the day has been set aside uh, as that sort of special day to to recognize the fallen.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, dad, for that uh, piece. I knew I could count on you. I'm just telling you all. Okay. So I'm, I'm trying to piece out some personal stuff. He shared unmarried. So I'm telling you Dad, people are always putting it in the comments. They want to hear more about your personal life. So no, I'm we, trying- you
1: know, we actually, we spent, we spent two or three episodes <laughs> if you recall talking about uh, me personally. Uh, and then because you got, we got you to talk about you a little bit. So yes. I think over the course of time, people, I've heard some things about me and maybe some (laughs) more things.
0: (laughs) Okay, then. So thank you again. Happy Memorial Day. We'll keep all of our ancestors and those who are fallen in reflection. Uh, So I appreciate that you sharing that piece. So, you know, like I said before, we've been, it's now the middle of, darn, it's now the middle of 2021. We've been through this pandemic for um, a year now going on a year and a half of course things are opening I mean things all the way open up here in Atlanta I don't know about Oxford but um, you know just to give kind of an update for you all who are listening or will listen later in the state of Georgia anyway, many people are still wearing their masks, although that has not been mandated anymore. Private businesses are still requesting it, but it's getting fairly loosey um here in Atlanta. I just talked to a girlfriend this morning, Tiffany, and she went to a restaurant today and no one had a mask on, including the servers, the patrons, no one. Um, so it's, it's, um, it's still... You know, I believe it's still going on and people should still use caution, but it appears that people are ready to get out and it's the summertime coming. So people are getting really lax in the protection of masks and keeping their distance.
1: Oh, I think that I think that's right. Oxford, uh, probably about the same uh, that you've indicated. Uh, uh, I just went to a restaurant and half the employees had masks on, the other half didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have now... Uh, in terms of chairs and people want to come and sit, they have it at full capacity. Uh, I wear my mask anytime I go in a place where I, I'm not aware of everybody being vaccinated. Mm. So if I'm at home or with people and they all been vaccinated, then I don't wear a mask. If I go into a restaurant, I walk in, I walk out, I wear a mask, I'm going to continue to do that until I see the numbers being much higher. And right now in Mississippi, we are still under 30% vaccinated. So that means 70% of people have not been vaccinated. So that means I play the R game and the virus (laughs) is still there. Those are not great odds, right? So I'm going to continue to play the R game. Um, You're right, things have opened up. We saw that in New York and we saw that in New Jersey. Although I will say on the East Coast, we found that people were willing to uh, wear the mask a little bit more. I think people have discarded for good reason, the Mm -hmm. mask outdoors, uh, but indoors. Uh, until the numbers go up in terms of vaccination, uh, I think I'm going to be inclined to put my mask on. I'm <laughs> not going to shame you if you don't. But right. I think I'm going to put mine on for a while.
0: Yeah, I just think, you know, we have to be careful because I, I know we're all tired with being cooped up. I completely get it. And, you know, some folks are out there don't believe that the COVID thing is real in general, but that's a whole other conversation and podcast. But you know, I do believe that we have to use caution. We can definitely go outside and it's definitely now, you know, time to begin to enjoy ourselves and get back to some normalcy, but please use caution. There are still some folks that I know, um, either by way of another friend or have heard that are still contracting the virus. So it is, you know, it's still very close. So just, you know, keep that in mind and continue to to be cautious. And many days, sometimes I forget. I mean, especially when I was out outside yesterday and going to, you know, things that are uh, outside in festivals, but even still in that regard, there's a lot of people. Um So just still be cautious with hand sanitizer and keeping distance and respecting other folks if they don't want to hug or shake hands or things of that nature. So That's right. I think all say. along
1: the question is good judgment. Uh, of course, the other thing, we can't control the whole world. We can't control this country, but we can control our own behavior to some extent. But the fact of the matter is uh, the virus is still raging in Brazil, where, where I've spent some time in the pavelos where yeah. a lot of poor people still live. And it's still raging in India. And people are still dying in large numbers, still contrasting the virus. And I'm of the opinion that as long as this virus, and India is a big country, and so is Brazil. Yeah. So if those variants uh, can escape, and we know virus will travel, how virus will travel, Uh, we know then that it's important that we still be, as you say, vigilant. Not not so crazy that we have to do some of the things that we did maybe two or three months ago, but still be vigilant and still work, hopefully, with our agency and our governments to see that they do, and the private sector, to make sure that poor countries uh, get vaccinated and get the vaccine, because if they are not healthy, then ultimately we are not healthy. Right. Because the virus will spread and it and it can come back.
0: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, you all stay safe out there. You know, it is commencement season as well, uh, even for even still now for high schools and especially up the East Coast, because they tend to have graduations a little bit later. So please stay safe as we gather and begin to go into the summertime. And you know, speaking about commencement, again, congratulations to all our graduates. We talked about that Did on I? our other podcast as well. If you know anything about that, and now because of me, we love celebrating graduations. It's a huge accomplishment, no matter what grade, what program, what college, just, you know, it's a huge feat to, to get through a process.
1: It is, complete. you're absolutely right about that. And I said to all my nieces and nephews and anybody else, when they send me a card indicating that they are graduating, now I'll usually send a gift. Now, if they don't send me a card, then i not get a gift. Uh, but that is, uh, I mean, it's something that's real dear to me is to recognize people that graduated from, you know, kindergarten, uh, mm-hmm. middle school, high school, college, grad school. I just believe that's just so important. And I just love to see people make, uh, achieve that in whatever field.
0: Yes, and Big Mama was big on that too. If you all know anything about our family, one thing about graduations pre-pandemic, um, if someone graduated, we were coming out. Somebody is going to represent the family. So I can even say just from growing up, that, is, that has always been a theme right of, of just uh, academic achievement.
1: Absolutely, almost like yeah. a rite of passage. Yes,
0: yes, yes. So congratulations you know, to the graduates. And that brings me to my next point. <laughs> which is something that dad and I talk about. But I'll start first before we get into the controversy. And feel free, if you are on Facebook Live to chime in, or if you hear this later, you can send us an email of what you think. But number one, you know, just being in the pandemic, I think the the realization, and specifically colleges and universities, but not even college and universities, I'll branch out and even say private, High schools in K through twelve have all uh, felt the the crunch of not bringing in the numbers, and we all know when we don't bring in the numbers. And when I say numbers, students those students represent dollar signs and those dollar signs that they're less represent not being able to pay faculty and staff and be able to have the same programs and possibly even the same facilities open. And so that has been a huge conversation in this whole education world. So, you know, kind of what are your thoughts on it? I know we have felt, you know, the crunch where I I work um, in terms of Feeling some of the programs just based on, based on the pandemic and students saying, you know, um, you don't need to charge me the same amount of money if I'm going to take all these classes online.
1: I don't have the hands-on experience now because I'm no longer, you know, involved with the university, uh, but I have been in conversation with uh, some administrators at, at, at Brandeis for an example, yeah. and, you know, it's a mixed bag. There were some administrators and i'll be able to know more numbers now because i was just you know uh, appointed to serve on the alumni board yeah but uh, my sense is that there were some administrators that felt initially that uh, they were going to experience a great shortfall uh, during the pandemic and while i think there's been some downward trend in terms of the revenue collected this past year it was not as significant as they had anticipated. I think they had anticipated something much larger than three or four percent and I think that's the range where it's in now. But there's another piece to that uh, because you're right, universities do depend on students being on campus, housing, you know, uh, fees, um, uh, dining services, you name it, all those Mm -hmm. things associated with getting money from students and if they're not there, then I imagine students and parents feel the crunch of saying, you know, why are we continuing to pay this huge bill if I could be on Zoom with my professor? I could just link up on Zoom or Skype mm-hmm. and do the same thing, and I have to pay fifty dollars to $60,000 a year. I think that's a reality that the university's got to face. In other words, I think down the road it was going to happen anyway. Yeah. But I think this pandemic has fast forward; it pushed things forward. Five, maybe five or ten years and that's not only just with the financing part that's with a whole bunch of other things we have taken for granted in terms of how we've done things at high ed for the last three or four or five hundred years yeah and maybe going forward that there will be some there now will be some innovation that would not have occurred that the pandemic has forced um so i think they are still in, a, in somewhat of a a no man's land in terms of how they proceed. I know most universities, the one that I've talked to, again, not most, but many, Mm -hmm. uh, are going to try to have uh, in-person learning uh, 100%, right, this fall.
0: Yeah. Now, there
1: may be students who are gonna be required to show proof of of vaccination. And of course, there are some problems there because there's some First Amendment issues that obviously lawyers like you are gonna raise and say, you know, why should this be required? But I think, for the most part, a lot of the students going to be back. But then, a lot of students may decide, "Hey, uh, why should I come back physically when I can do everything online?" And so, what what does the university do with that? Does it say you got to be back here? And if you and got then, to be back I mean, here, it's will yeah, be best Excuse me, I'm finished.
0: No, I was gonna say, you know, even with that, then the other conversation is as well. Like I mentioned before. Why am I paying sixty thousand dollars, or why are a parent? Why is a parent paying sixty thousand dollars for this experience that is is technically online? So you know, I'm not utilizing student uh, the classroom. I'm not utilizing the dining room. I'm eating at home. I'm not utilizing the gym. I'm working out in my own room or going to LA Fitness or whatever. So why do I still need to pay $60,000? And like you said, how, how, how do you believe that higher ed or, you know, universities going to reconcile with that?
1: I think that's right. But, you know, universities will make the argument, I can't speak for them, but, you know, you, 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 you work at a medical school, they go argue that some cost is built in. You know, for example, we already got the dorm built. We already got the, you know, food service thing built. Uh, and so therefore, you know, we got maintenance costs to deal with. So whether the students are here or not, we still got to keep the water on. We still got to keep the electric on. You know, we still have to have security on the campus, maybe even less. So they are gonna argue that they got built-in costs, right? Because yeah. the student will argue, well, hey, that's your bad, not mine. Right,
0: <laughs> right. But. Right. but,
1: but that but that's something that I think got to be worked out, you know, moving forward. i I mean, I don't know what the answer is gonna be. I think some universities may have to adjust the cost because I think if you think about high ed, say a community college or state supported universities versus the uh, say elite universities, you know, I had a chance to visit Princeton for the first time yeah. I told you, you know a couple of weeks ago. Uh and I guess that's the last so-called Ivy League that I've have not had have not been to. Yeah, and then I just curiously checked on their endowment, you know, which is about twenty-six billion dollars.
0: <laughs> How did endowment. you curiously check on the endowment? But you,
1: but you, but you know, it's it's amazing that that kind of money is already that endowment. Now I know they would argue, well, this is set aside for other purposes, <laughs> and therefore I still want you to pay this fifty or sixty thousand dollars when you get accepted it to Princeton, right? As right. one example. But the fact of the matter is that maybe some other folk out there could argue at the end of the day, other than the name, mm-hmm. so a lot of people argue that you pay for the name. Yes. Right? You go to yes. Harvard, you go to Yale, you go to Brown, you know, you go to Columbia, you go to Stanford, you, know, you go to wherever, some right. of the other great schools, you go to state schools based on name. Right. So you pay for the name. Now, can they argue that you get a better education? I don't know. I don't know what yeah. you can qualifiably say that if you go to Brown as opposed to going to Northeastern, at mm-hmm. the end of the day, you're gonna get quote unquote a better education. Because right. that's pretty subjective, right? You I'm not sure you can measure that so well. Yeah. But I do know that because of that name, because of that tradition, if a people have a choice between going to Northeastern or going to Brandeis, going to Harvard, they're gonna offer Harvard first. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So yeah. That's what they do. So they'll say, "Okay, so if you get into Harvard, whether you do it, you know, virtually or not, gonna you go. You're still it paying. Because of the name. <laughs>
0: <laughs> See, that's not fair. And there's another and then, you know, argument. That's
1: my take. I might say that's right. true.
0: Right. Right. I mean, there's also people that have said too. You know, you know, there's there's professors that teach at Harvard and they also teach at the community college and. Yeah. It's not as if that person is changing their curriculum or what they're teaching, I should say. Now, they might tweak it a little bit here or there, but they're still the same person. They're just moving from one university to the other. So back to your point, that's subjective to say that I'm getting more of a quality education here than there. Now, are all of the professors that are at Brown and Yale teaching at community college? Absolutely not. But there are some that teach kind of across um, several different universities. But again, you know, is that the majority? Not. Yes. But um, but yeah, you're definitely, in my opinion, paying for the name and also the resources that come with that name. So, you know, you may end up with a Cornell West as a professor at a Harvard versus at a Heinz Community College. Or you may end up with, you know, your top elite politicians who now want to teach in their second career at a Yale versus right. a Jack. Well, I think game.
1: you you hit on some very good points, but you know, there's another little point here that's subtle. And that happened too. And you know, you've been in missions, so you know the game that gets played in the mission. Well, you know, I told you, I have an example, one previous president Brown at Brandeis, and I guess I was at some event and uh, he was one of my favorite, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> he was just talking to us and he was just talking about, he looked over to us and said, uh, you know, uh, Based on the test scores now and what we require to get in, and given the fact how many students we eliminate as opposed to how many students we accept, you, you all would have gotten in. I said you would have gotten in either. <laughs> but, but the point the I'm point making here is that oftentimes st- institutions that are considered to be elite will brag about how good they are based on how many of the students they don't accept. Yes. Yes. As to how many students they accept. Now, does that indicate one is more quality than the other? I don't think so. But it's amazing how you can buy into that. Because I imagine when students are about to, you know, get accepted, uh, one of the things they look at is what the acceptance rate is. Right. You know, a lot of universities will put out out there that we are, we had 25,000 students to apply, but we only accepted a thousand. Right. So that makes you look good. But yeah. then on the other hand, it may be something about the fact that you may need to, need to rethink your whole mission. Yes. Or your whole philosophy about whether or not you're going to equate a, a rejection with quality.
0: I agree. And then it builds this narrative as well that in my opinion, that many of the students who did not make it were not qualified. And so then that narrative is perpetuated as well. That, you know, just because you do not have in essence, the 3.9, the 4.0 and the 1500, whatever the score is now for the SAT, that you're not a qualified student for this quote unquote type of education. And so to me, it puts this undue stress on students thinking that they're not ever going to be able to um, make it. Uh, successfully. And that, well, you that know, they bothers
1: Well, re- You know, they have done plenty of research to talk about test scores versus performance. Right. So basically, sometimes you can have a, t- a test score that's very high and not perform well in terms of uh, what you do in school.
0: Absolutely. Uh, and a
1: graduation. So I think you could argue that there's really no correlation between that test score and how well you're going to do once you get in. Because uh, many other uh, in, uh, in, in indices or many other intelligence that will come into play in terms of how well you perform. How, how much do you study? How much do you, how, how, how do you interact with other colleagues? How do you, uh, what kind of determination do you have? What kind of right. drive do you have? Uh, what kind of mentorship will you get a, attached to? There are a lot of things that will determine whether or not you become a successful student yeah. other than just a test score. Well, and, dad,
0: what you're just saying, an admissions team does not want to hear, not at a yell or a... Or right. a- <laughs> Or a Harvard, well, or a... Well, or well a, perhaps they
1: wouldn't have me as a mission officer.
0: <laughs> they probably <laughs> would not, because that is the argument. You know, that mm-hmm. is the argument out there. Is What is the true correlation between standardized test score and... Come to bring the
1: data. I mean, put the public, put that data out there for the whole public to see.
0: Right, right. Well, but oftentimes, at
1: the private school, that, that data is kept privately.
0: Absolutely, okay. absolutely. And one, and one thing that I've uh, come to realize, and and, and just having this passion now for um, diversity, equity, and inclusion in particular in in this standardized process is realizing that I saw, and I said this in a podcast before, I have seen with my own eyes students who um, do not decide to apply to medical school, pharmacy school, physical therapy school, law school, because they've been fed this narrative. That it, not even just fed the narrative, seen the reality, too, that if they don't have the test scores that they are supposed to have, quote unquote, or have the, you know, volunteer hours or whatever the barriers are, they're, they're not going to get in. And the reality is many of these students that get in, it's because their parents or their environment has has trained them to be able to pass the test. Not necessarily that they're academically strong, but they've gotten the resources they have need to position themselves to be able to overcome that barrier. Because well, seen, yeah.
1: You've seen yeah. an example, every family can relate to this because we, our family can relate to this. You can have two children, basically, you know, maybe two cousins and they can be quote unquote in terms of intelligence, in terms of their brightness. Equally matched, right? Mm-hmm, but you mm-hmm. you put that one kid in an environment where he gets all those things you just talked about. Right. And then you put that other kid in an environment where that kid doesn't get that. Does that make that kid less intelligent? No. But if given the opportunity and that kid is mentored and provided those resources, I can guarantee you that kid has a capacity to catching up and, and over time even surpassing that student that had all those resources to begin with. Yeah. So again, again, put the data out there for everybody to see. And I think we can then uh, decide one way or the other.
0: Yes. And so if you are admissions folks or faculty or in education, we I hope that you're hearing this conversation and we'll do something from where you sit. You know, if you are on the admissions team, really begin to look at what are your processes? Like you said, what's your mission? Dad, you know, Dad doesn't mention this a lot as well, but he was vice president at Jackson State. So he does know about the, the higher education realm outside of Brandeis. But, you know, if you are a faculty member, begin to fight. If you're not already fight for for, fight for these students that are trying to get into these higher ed programs or professional schools, because I I just can't tell you enough that there are quite a few students I have seen come through in my not just working at the professional school, but also undergrad. Um, that weren't ready for college or professional school. Now, they look good on paper, but they did not have the critical thinking. They did not have the writing component. They did not have the social skills. And so you got to begin to look at those things as well when we're talking about you know, bringing success in terms of a college education or someone who's getting ready to go into a field where they're taking care of others. So yeah i'm talking I was about the just, whole, about the whole
1: person the whole the person the whole
0: person yes Absolutely. yes yeah. we have got to get away uh you know and i'm not saying that you don't need to have some sort of standards but we need to really reevaluate this whole standardized process of these tests and um these quote unquote high gpas that a lot of times are uh fluctuated so anywho um, you and know, you can it, cheat
1: like we don't even talk about the cheating <laughs> thing, but that's another <laughs> right. that's a whole that's a whole nother thing.
0: Right. Uh, exactly. You got the, you got
1: the resources you can just hire somebody to take the test for your kid. Yes. Uh, you know, anyway, we we, yes. we won't go there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. So with that being said, okay, let's say you get in school, you go through the process, you graduate, like many of, of, of our um cousins and friends that are doing this right now in May as we close up the month, and now you got Debt, loans, loans, people, Mm. loans, lots of loans. I have loans, you have loans. Well, dad didn't have loans. I'm sure if you're listening, somebody on this call has loans that they are still dragging Mm. around with them. And so the question is, dad, do you believe (laughs) (laughs) that we should be able, like uh, Bernie Sanders, go ahead and wipe out
1: all the loans. Uh, I like Bernie a lot. And, uh,
0: <laughs> <laughs> Y'all, you already know where this is going. And, and,
1: and, and I support a, a lot of his uh, his stuff, you know, because a lot of his platform now is really very much a part of the Democratic Party, and very much part of some of the stuff that Joe Biden is pushing in his administration. You're right. I had loans. I, I paid them off. <laughs> uh I paid my loans off.
0: Congratulations!
1: I, thank you, thank you, Aisha, and I have paid off uh, some of yours as well. So, yes. But anyway, uh, to your point, uh, the cost of education is is too expensive across the board. I, yeah. I agree with you on that one. And you know, you have choices to go to state-supported universities, which run a little bit cheaper than your private schools, and then you have the community colleges uh, for the first two years. I think they want to make those free. Now, I don't think they're necessarily yeah. free now, but you don't pay a lot of money to go to a community college or they used to call them here, junior college. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that's number one, is the cost of education, how education is just too high, yeah. first of all. And I'm not sure that as I said before, there's a correlation between the cost and the quality. Okay? Right now we could argue that. That's just, that's my belief based on what I've seen. The other thing is, so oftentimes, because we have a a society that's not based on equality, that oftentimes the very wealthy are able to pay for their education, as they are so many other things. And your middle-class people and your working-class people oftentimes have to struggle with an education financially. Uh, Oftentimes, as you know, if you achieve a lot in school, you can get you a scholarship. Um, I was able to get a scholarship when I went to college. Not a full, but a scholarship. So that helps out, but does it help enough, no. So that means those students who are going to college, oftentimes end up with with, with debt, and sometimes a lot of debt. But we understand that now, other than the regular debt, that the college loan debt is probably one of the biggest ones out there. So I appreciate Bunny's effort to talk about giving some kind of relief. Uh, I'm also of the belief though that community service is also important. Mm -hmm. Now we don't have a draft system anymore and I oppose it when we did, we do have a volunteer service and we used to have something called Peace Corps and now I think it's called AmeriCorps Mm -hmm. where those students can give, young people give something back to their country. Um, I think now since we don't have those kinds of uh, services or we don't push it as much, that if we got loans and we owe 50 or $60,000 or more, rather than forgive the entire debt. I would argue that you give, forgive a portion of the debt and then the rest of it you pay off over time. However, I think for that part of the debt that's, for, that's forgiven that you ought to commit to go and work in a uh, under-resourced community, or uh, you could do it not only just in this country, you could do it abroad, mm-hmm. uh, go and mentor, go and tutor, uh, go and work for a teacher corps. Uh, uh go into communities and help with you know nonprofits. There are a number of things if you got a certain kind of skill set mm-hmm. that you could go back and, and, and do this and and get part of your loan forgiven. And you still get paid. Uh, you may not get paid because you might not have gone to Wall Street but you might not have gone to some high power law firm, uh, medical school where, where uh, the debt is high and you go to maybe overtime as a doctor be able to make that money up quickly. And we understand that a lot of folk in education other places, not gonna make that kind of money to pay off that loan. So it's gonna take a long time. Yeah. I'm just of the opinion though, that you don't forgive the whole loan, that it is a debt. Mm-hmm. And as a debt, you, you have an obligation to pay back the debt. However, if you do get forgiven for part of that debt, then give something in return for that, uh, uh, for that uh, forgiveness then that's my position. And I know I've argued with you and others about that. And so we come down on different sides and I appreciate that.
0: Right. Well, I will say, you know, I'm not completely against what you're saying. I do. I do believe that. I think, again, I think we have a niece that
1: completely. Yeah. Yeah. My niece niece
0: completely, completely disagrees. She does not feel like you have to go and give, you know, voluntary servitude, if you will, for the um, (laughs) for the debt that you have accrued. And I mean, I think the bigger conversation is why in the heck? is college so expensive in the first place? And so, but again, that doesn't, that doesn't negate or take away the fact that we have to deal with the debt that we're sitting with right now until that conversation is uh, had. And, and you
1: remember we had a conversation about reparation, which is on a different podcast. And, right. I, and I, I want to be consistent here because one of the things we said there, just like this country owe us a debt. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we got a debt and we expect that debt over time to be paid, yeah, a portion of that debt to be paid. Uh, I would, I would argue that if you got a loan, then ought to, you, if you get into the workplace or whatever, then you ought to, uh, you ought to give something back.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm with you. I'll meet you halfway. I think there is a portion that should just be forgiven because I do believe that the. The system has not done the best job with number one, education of taking out loans. I think that some of these loans have been predatory in nature um, and, and really not done their due their due justice in making sure that a a 17 or 18 year old or even a young parent are, is fully aware of what's getting ready to happen so i still believe that there's a portion that just needs to be forgiven based on that i mean we're talking about students that are having a hundred and a hundred and fifty thousand dollars in debt that's just ridiculous it's different with a twenty thousand or a thirty thousand debt where you were just taking it out just because and i don't know how you weigh that but i do believe that there is a percentage that should just be forgiven while we have this conversation about doing a whole overhaul of the process of higher ed and how it's, it's how to be, uh, how it is to be served. But I do, I mean, I'm with you, I'm okay with the whole voluntary servitude right. of some just of, just just a some follow, amount,
1: just to follow up on your point about cost, though. And that's so again, your point is so well taken about trying to get uh young. High school kids before they even go to college, sort of educated about this whole financial trap.
0: Yeah, and
1: and I think we you're right. Uh, universities and colleges perhaps have not done a good job of financial counseling in that regard mm-hmm. about how much to take and what's too much to take. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that I've observed, and you know, and this has happened with universities. I studied at Jackson State that. And again, I knew I, I grew up in, a, in a, went to school at an age uh, when, you, <laughs> right. when you lived in a dorm that was, you know, a, really a dorm and not right. a condo and not, you know. And so one of the things we found as we started to transform the campus physically, we were hearing from a lot of students about, well, we don't want to come to Jackson State because we're not sure about the dorms. Mm-hmm. So... I think Dr. Mason and others to their credit were saying, okay, we need to be able to uh, respond to those by saying, you can come here, you're gonna find these dorms just as nice as any dorms anywhere. Mm
0: -hmm. But
1: in addition to that, they were also talking about having a home away from home. Mm -hmm. And so when you talk about those kinds of amenities that university has now put in place over the last 15, 20, 25 years, that comes with a cost. Mm-hmm. So if you opt to live, you know, in that condo, or in some cases, if you live like in places like New York and Boston, California, Chicago, and others where the cost of housing is so high, you know, you're either going to pay a, a, a lot for housing off campus, or you're going to pay a lot for housing on campus. So you get this, you got this competition going on mm-hmm. about how do we create this kind of environment where students don't have to put up with not being able to have all the amenities while they pursue this higher education thing. Right. And that's 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 driving some of the cost too. Yeah. Because yeah. everybody wants to live the way they want to live. Right. Uh, and you've seen this, uh, and not only that, but they also want to have all this other stuff that go along with having all these amenities and yeah. it comes with a cost. So, if you're taking out loan to pay for a lot of this stuff, extra stuff, you can see how over time that would accumulate a huge debt in addition to tuition and room and board and fees.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a conversation to be had where do you, where do you stop and where do you start? So does the university say, look, we're not going to go and enhance the campus because we know morally these students are going to take out more loans than they need? And but then the students we were are saying go, then,
1: and the students right, say go somewhere else, somewhere and, else. And, and, and get the, get the loan right That's so true. you you get caught in this catch22 situation where it becomes such competition that it's not how low you can go but how high you can go in mm-hmm. terms of amenities Because right. the students are simply saying we're not going to come to that place unless we can get these kinds of amenities matter of fact when I've had you know tours I did uh, tours on jack State campus mm-hmm. the first place where students want to go It's to that dormitory, to that- uh, Right, the nice
0: dormitory. Yeah, yeah. And I I mean, I guess in that that regard, again, it goes back to the financial education because when I was at Northeastern, I was signing off on paperwork. I had no clue what it said. I could not tell you today what this paperwork meant. And I was signing on the dotted line and it was large amounts of money. And I had no sense. And this is, I come from a middle-class family. You're an educator, mom's educated. So it's not like I'm just- walking in blindly but i was never educated on perkins loans and subsidized unsubsidized what the heck does that mean to a 17 year old nothing so i signed on the dotted line because that's what the financial aid lady said here's your paperwork sign here because now i'm considered a quote unquote adult um so in that standpoint i don't know what my future is going to look like in 30 years So that's not to say that I just, you know, I deserve to have everything forgiven because I didn't know. But I do believe the onus is on the university to educate a 17 year old who's getting ready to sign off on the paperwork because the parent cannot do it at this point, because I'm technically, like I said, the adult of this university. I need some more information. I, I, I clearly can tell you I did not have one class on what these loans were going to be about 20 years later. I, I agree say with that. you on
1: that one, but you know, one of the arguments that universities, not all, but some universities would make, would be, well, you an adult. When you get to be on campus, you, you're mm-hmm. now in college and you're now an independent young woman or independent young man, you make your own decisions. I mean, mm-hmm. that's what they say. But I right. think the reality is, as you have pointed out, a lot of the young people need to kind of financial services uh, information that you just uh, alluded to. Now, they can still make the choice to to go the other way, but at least they, they can't cry ignorance at that point.
0: Right. I agree, and and again, if you're on the call, maybe you you know are listening on Facebook. Maybe you're in financial aid, and and they're doing that now. I mean, I've been out of undergrad for a while, but I do I do believe if you're gonna say on the back end, like you said, that okay, somebody needs to forgive or you know do some voluntary servitude, I didn't know on the front end what I'm getting into. So I, I you know I just I only think that's fair on both sides. Um, again, my niece and others have the argument. I don't care about any of it. Just forgive my loans because it's just too much, but I do believe if you are to pay a debt, give me the information that I need to know ahead of time where I truly understand it. Um, okay. And that may even be a little bit of onus on high schools. I don't know because I know there's a lot of parents that don't know about student loans. so I don't know if I will even put it on the parents, but the education needs to be there because it makes me still have this inkling of it's a bit predatory in nature yeah. because if I, I, I fully understand and I'm signing... On the line for thousands of dollars, and I'm not clear. Mm, I'm uneasy mm. about that.
1: I only to have one uh, absolute no-no is that is I don't want to forgive you uh, if you took out a loan to buy a BMW.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that is. That seems to be all these people taking out loans are buying BMWs, Teslas, <laughs> buying Gucci, Pucci, and Lucci. That's that's that's
1: what he has to say and we're not that's saying my they not doing that that's my own, that's my only no I've seen a few I, hey look that's not completely out the air by the way I'm here in Oxford Mississippi right so uh, i I see a, I see a large number of uh, anyway uh, BMWs right. and uh, uh, Mercedes and uh, driven by freshmen now I, <laughs> I know some of them may be wealthy <laughs> and I know some of them may come from wealthy families. But if, you're, if you got to do it alone, I would say, get you a Toyota. <laughs> <laughs> so students, soon as you anyway. know who you are, we have caught you. But you've called caught me caught you. before.
0: <laughs> we have caught you. Oh, goodness. Well, you know, if you all have an opinion, definitely chime in. It's it's definitely something where Dad and I don't necessarily agree. I can't be in the middle. But, you know, look, like you all, we waiting on Biden to come up with a plan. What you you got, Biden? What you got? So hopefully, you know, he'll be willing to forgive. I've heard it's not really top of item right now. So we shall see. We'll keep our fingers crossed. Stay stay tuned, everyone, uh, in regards to the loans. But, you know, you know, with that, just kind of changing uh, subjects, even though it's not on a lighter note, it's really just this issue around this Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Um, you all, I know some have seen it, some have not. Um, some may be seen it on Instagram or post and not really known what it's about. So that, you know, I'll lean to you in terms of us just giving a little history, because I believe it's important for us to be knowledgeable about what's going on in the world and not just in the United States.
1: Well, I think this is an issue um, almost like the, the virus that everybody sort of knows about it around the world because it's been there a while, especially since 1948, but even, even before then. but that's when the state of Israel was founded, you know, and that was based on a, a war that had taken place and because the United Nations intervened and established the state of Israel. And of course the Arabs at that time were, were not accepting of that. And, and so you end up with war and conflict, which has been ongoing. In terms of the recent conflict, and it, it's a major conflict, we're talking about Palestinian Israeli conflict and not necessarily Egypt or not necessarily Jordan or some of the other Arab countries, but we're talking about really the Israeli really, uh, Arab conflict, which is both in terms of the Arabs or the Palestinians that live within Israel as well as the one that lives in the West Bank and, and, uh, and Gaza Strip. You know, I had a chance to go to Gaza, I had a chance to go to To Palestine, I had a chance to also visit and travel over Israel just a few years ago. And it was kind of quiet then, but you just knew, you had the sense that it wasn't going to be quiet long. Um, A friend of mine who is is, uh, uh, in Boston uh, shared with me a piece, I had shared with him a piece, and he shared with me a piece that had been written by Albert Camus, uh, who is a great French philosopher, and I shared with him a, a piece by Paulo Freire, who is a very well-known uh, philosopher from Brazil, of Portuguese mm-hmm. origin. And he had written a book called The Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And most people are, 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 are quite familiar with Albert Camus, the, uh, the French ph- uh, philosopher. But he talks about this absurdity of things, because one of the things, that if you think about that is Israeli Palestinian conflict and the fact that in this recent conflict that so many people were killed, mm. civilians mostly, and many of these people who were killed were children. Yeah. And I think people on any side that got any sense of humanity cannot be, cannot help be touched by the, the tragedy of children being killed in, in war. So he, and he referred back to the situation between Algeria and the uh, the Berbers and the Algerian and the French and the Arab conflict. And that was an effort on the part of the people in Algeria to uh, get independence from the French that was colonial power at that time. And the absurdity again of war because it's like a zero sum game. It's almost like people will kill each other to the point when everybody's dead and then only the dead is innocent. Mm. And that's sort of you know when I think about this, it's really uh, uh, Palestinian conflict because you got these uh, this geopolitical thing, these politicians on both sides, whether it's Hamas or whether it's uh, Netanyahu, who clearly wants to stay in power, and clearly uh, you got Hamas that will take advantage of the situation to make a point a political yeah. point, knowing that it cannot uh, defeat Israel militarily because of the support that Israel gets from America. Uh, so if this comes as sort of this brinkmanship, this game. And at, at, at the end of the day, it's the innocent people, i.e. the children on both sides who are end uh, up dying with no um, end in sight. So one of the things that seems to me, and I don't pretend to be an expert here, but just a citizen that's observes is that I believe very strongly in a two-state solution, that based on what I saw on the ground there, whether it was in Egypt or what I saw on the ground in Jordan or in Israel or in Palestine, it's going to require some kind of two-state solution down the road. Now, will they get there tomorrow? No. Will they get there next week? No. They might not even get there in our lifetime, but they're eventually going to, have to get there because there's no military solution in this area. They can fight wars and wars after wars after wars. There's no military solution. There's going to have to be some kind of political solution, which involves some kind of coming together of the Palestinians and Israelis to say, look, we own this land together. We may not like each other for all kinds of historical reasons, although we should love each other rather than hate each other. And so therefore, it's going to be important for us to find a solution that's going to be in the best interest of both peoples in the future. It's not going to be easy to get there. I don't care whether the United States government or whether it's Russia or whether it's whatever. The European Union is not going to be able to get there. But at least they can start to try. They were right to stop the fighting, at least get a ceasefire. Yeah. And then now the question is going to be the hard work now starts about what kind of future do we want to see in this land? And uh, it's going to take some courage on both sides. You know, we had the guy, uh, Rabin, some years ago when Carter was president in Egypt. Sadat, so they ended up, you know, getting a, a peace treaty between Israel and Egypt. And what happened? Rabin was eventually assassinated by an extremist. And also there was attempts a on, uh, on Sadat's life as well. So... When people step out to do things like this in this area, it's a dangerous proposition and therefore they have to have tremendous courage to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there any other solution to, a, 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 to this war? I don't see it. Uh, I, I just I don't see it other than uh, people trying to come together uh, and solve this. Now, you know, Israel says it's, it's a democratic republic, it's a democracy. Well, you got an issue there. If it's democracy, you got Palestinians within Israel. Mm-hmm. And pretty soon they'll be a majority. So you cannot have a Jewish state and at the same time call it a democracy. You got to have, or you can have a two state solution. You can have your identity within the state of Israel and then allow the Palestinians to have a state. And then you just call it a day. You have your state, you have my state, and we live together in peace as brothers, because you're brothers anyway. Yeah. Uh, if you think about uh, Arabic and, and, and Hebrew, uh, but that's my take. And, you know, I went to Brandeis um, and uh, you have discussions pro and con. I had discussion with people when I was in, uh, in the Holy Land, as they call it, among Israelis as well as among Palestinians. And right now they can't get beyond the hate. They can't get beyond the fight. They can't get beyond I've been wrong.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, and at some point, almost like in South Africa with Mandela, because uh, you don't want to end up in an apartheid situation where people go in and take folk land as they did uh, recently, or you go in and, and take over a, a, a mosque or on a on, on, on holy day, and that, that thing is that, 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 it, that, that facility is, is holding to both Jews, uh, Christians, and Muslims. Uh, you, you got to find a way to respect each other and find a common ground in humanity and, every, and everybody. And I think once people look for that, um, maybe uh, something can happen. It reminds me of even being in the South, you know, growing up in seeing apartheid. And, and and people saying, there's no way out of this. You know, yeah. there will always be, you know, Josh wash used the expression, segregation yesterday, segregation now, segregation forever. Right. So are we going to say, uh, hatred now, hatred today, hatred forever, or are we going to look for some other solution for our children and our grand- grandchildren and great grandchildren? And the current Abbas, and all due respect, Netanyahu, they can't solve this problem. It's going to take another generation of Palestinians and Israelis too, to step beyond this abyss and, and work for a future. Uh, Uh, And that's what it's going to take. And that may take other groups other than politicians because churches and and leaders and synagogues and and, uh, the Muslim community, the Christian community, the lay community, um, all kinds of groups got to step up to the plate and not just leave it to these darn politicians uh, and military folk to solve this problem. They can't.
0: yeah, that's what I was thinking. I mean, I think knowledge is power, especially with us at least knowing the story and you know, thank you for sharing that story because I think even from where we sit being able to just acknowledge that we know what's going on and we're knowledgeable about what's going on is the first step cuz like you said if it if it if it doesn't become kind of this communal worldly conversation, it's not going to change. If why? Why would it at
1: this point? Well, it's not going to change because you're going to have you know, piece of people uh, shooting missiles at, at civilians, which is crazy. Yeah. And then you have Israelis' outstrikes targeting essential departments yeah. uh, just to get a, quote-unquote, of terrorists. So you're going to kill 20 people to get one terrorist. I mean, come on. Uh, yeah. And the devastation of having to rebuild every time, because you start back at the same point. Right. You just made all this destruction. And now you are asking the world to go back and rebuild. So right. in another two years, three years, five years down the road, be back at the same place. Right. We got to figure out a way. They got to figure out a way to get beyond this. Uh, and I don't pretend to know the answers. I just know that my when I was growing up, I was told that if you keep doing the same thing over and over, and you expect the same result, to me that sounds like being an idiot.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah and call insanity. Yeah. Well, w- what I can Can't do wait. is is lift up the information. Thank you dad, you know, for sharing that information. I encourage those who are listening who don't know the story, the history, what's going on currently to at least be informed. I mean, that's the first step, be informed. Um and then, you know, of course it's it's a conversation that has been going on before the test of time. Uh but I, I I am optimistic to believe, at least with information, there can be a start of a conversation of, like you said, a new a new group of Palestinians and Israelis that will um, begin to break the cycle. At least, I, that's all I can say. Well, that's, that that's well
1: said. That's well said. It took people like Mandela. And the clerk, you know, they had the the courage to break the cycle. Uh, I'm not saying that we have anybody of that caliber right now who can break that cycle. Hopefully down the road we can find somebody to break that cycle. Dr. King and others came along and with Gandhi in India and said, look, we we got to go a different way. Uh, And we broke some cycles. Uh, Did we we reach uh, uh, the the promised land? Uh, Probably not but did we make some progress beyond that, which is clearly absurd? The answer is yes. Uh, uh, Maybe we need Albert Camus to come now and speak to, uh, to this situation. That piece was in The Nation, by the way, that was written by Albert Camus.
0: Excellent. Well, our, you know, our time is up, Zed, you know, because we're still enjoying this holiday. So if you, you know, again, if you're tuning in, thank you so much for doing so. Wherever you are, we hope that the weather, you know, is really nice. And I hope for those that have listened, I was able to get a few personal stories in. Like I said, y'all, I'm trying, I'm trying. (laughs) Um, And always as, as well to the graduates, hopefully Biden will forget some of your loans, or we'll have, you know, dad and I have come up with the voluntary servitude option. So maybe we'll we'll put that on <laughs> on the table for the administrators for the next cycle. So anyway, Dad, thank you for thank you. you know sharing time, you know, with me. It's always fun. I really enjoy it's it. It's
1: always a pleasure, and it's particular pressure on the on the weekend before uh Memorial Day. Yeah. And again, we, we look forward to to future discussion uh, re- related to this debt issue because that's not gonna go away. And the other controversial thing that's not gonna go away in the near future will be the uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And that's we right. hope and pray though that um, that people can find peace.
0: Yes, absolutely. And, and with that, we hope that you have peace this weekend. As always, while we're still in this pandemic and moving on, we want you to be safe and share love one love so thank you all so much for those who are on facebook live uh thank you for tuning in and share this with some of your other friends but we are going to go ahead and close out of course for our podcast so if you would like to contact us please go to Dad Daughter Dialogues. At gmail.com. That's daddaughterdialogues with an S and gmail.com and let us know how we're doing as well as what you'd like to hear us discuss. We are also on Facebook at Dad Daughter Dialogues. And now we are on Instagram at dad daughter dialogues with an s both on facebook and on instagram you can check out some of our fabulous merchandise we have voting merchandise we have uh just like the shirt that dad's wearing if you see it on facebook marketplace i'm sorry if you see it on facebook live right now so please go and purchase some of our wonderful wonderful merchandise either on facebook or on instagram you can also make comments there too as well or tell us some things that you'd like to hear from us You can also just go to our um, standard podcast at anchor.fm and be a subscriber. That will really help us keep the podcast going because it takes a lot behind the scenes for us to do this. And we appreciate anyone who subscribes. We appreciate you tuning in and ask that wherever you are, be and stay safe. Take care of Facebook.
1: Take care everybody.
0: This is the love. This is the love that makes me strong. This is the love that makes me strong. This This is the love. This is the love. This is the love.